we may never work in the same way again. So reimagine the office with scalable workspaces that flex to your needs. Design-led interiors and world-class IT. Iconic offices have reinvented the future of working, so you don't have to. Hybrid offices, co-working, or custom floors for a global HQ. 16 prime Dublin locations, infinite possibilities. Experience it for yourself. Visit iconicoffices.ie to reimagine how working can work for your business. Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Shane Hannan brings us back to the extraordinary Apollo program that landed men on the moon and the Irish links to that one giant leap for mankind in Picking Up Some Dust. The moment that I remember more about that day, it wasn't when he said the eagle is landing and he wasn't when he stepped on the moon. At about somewhere around 30 feet, he said 30 feet, four feet per second down or something like that. And he said, he just threw it in quickly. 100 feet, three and a half down, nine forward. 5%. percent on any bike. Hey, 75 feet, guys looking good, down a half. Six forward. 60 seconds. Lights on. Down two and a half. Forward. Forward. Good. 40 feet down two and a half. Picking up some dust. Picking up some dust. And when he said that, it still sends chills. Uh, when I think of that, it, it dawned on me. We have an, two guys in this spacecraft with an engine that's hitting the lunar surface and blowing dust out. And I said, we're gonna land, we're gonna land. 30 feet, two and a half down, straight shadow. Four forward, four forward, drifting to the right a little. Down a half, 30 seconds. Forward, just Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a detent. Hold control both auto detent engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Where were you at 9.17pm Irish time on Sunday, July 20th, 1969? You may be one of the unlucky ones, a bit like myself, not yet alive to witness Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's landing at the Sea of Tranquility. My own interest in that first landing on the moon grew through stories from my dad. That as a 13-year-old in County Galway, he watched the grainy landing on television and the famous One Small Step by Armstrong six and a half hours later. The voice you heard at the beginning was that of Jerry Griffin, a former NASA flight director and one of those back in Mission Control in Houston, anxiously awaiting word of touchdown. There are many fascinating Irish links to the Apollo moon programme, which we'll explore over the next while. It was an endeavour conceived after all, by a certain John F. Kennedy from Wexford, 
as Griffin explained when we sat down for a chat in the Texan Hill Country. When I first heard Kennedy make the speech, he made a first speech to Congress and then at Rice, and that speech uh, he essentially kind of said the same, same thing. I thought, I'm not sure we can do that in, that fast. I, of course, I didn't know much about, I knew a lot about airplanes at that point. I didn't know a lot about rockets and where we were in the progression, but I knew it sounded fast, and I wasn't sure we could do it. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. When Kennedy made that speech at Rice University in September 1962, he wasn't to know he would never live to see the realisation of Project Apollo. Ultimately, 12 American men walked on the surface of the moon on six landings between Apollo 11 in 1969 and the Apollo 17 mission in December 1972. The late Captain Gene Cernan, commander of Apollo 17, describes those final moments before landing better than most. Houston, the Challenger has landed. Yes, sir. But we is here. And is we here. How's that look? The clock is ticking all the way for 14 minutes, all the way from 50,000 yeah. feet, all the way down to when you touch down. And when you do touch down, all the noise, all the vibration, all the talking is gone. It becomes the most quiet moment, at least in my life. As the dust cleared, we were looking out the windows, seeing what has never been seen with human eyes before. It's a really philosophical aspect yeah, to it. It's very the philosophical. Involuntarily, you're looking at gauges, you're listening, you're concentrating, you're looking at the landing site, but the Earth is just staring yeah. you in the face. Unbelievable. I landed on the moon, I lived on the moon, and I drove a lunar rover and ended up to be tabbed the last guy to walk on the moon. Yeah. That last footprint, the flag, and Tracy's initials are there, and someone said, how long will they be there? I said, forever, however long forever is. The Apollo 17 mission was a particularly memorable one for Irish space commentator Leo Enright. He witnessed the launch of that flight from Cape Canaveral in Florida with his interest in all things Apollo fuelled by the Stanley Kubrick classic, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Next thing that really impressed me, that stuck in my mind and gave me the moon bug was 2001, A Space Odyssey. That came out at about the same time as Apollo 8, and in those days, in Dublin, we were very advanced. There was a Cinerama uh, near Amien Street Station, and it was stunning to watch the opening sequence of 2001 in full Cinerama, the uh, Earth rising behind the moon. conceived before Apollo 8. So really it was a case of life imitating art to an extent. That that captured me big time uh, and so I decided 
kind of there and then that I wanted to witness uh, men going to the moon. The permission I needed was from my schoolmaster because I was still at school. <laughs> it was actually the year I was doing my leaving cert. So the school went absolutely ballistic when I announced that I was going to spend three weeks in America at Christmas time, just when I was supposed to be getting ready for the mock leaving cert. So there was a bit of chaos at school, but they eventually relented. I had already been writing regularly to NASA because in those days you didn't go online to see the pictures. You wrote to NASA, you put a stamp on the envelope, you posted the envelope to America. It took two weeks for the envelope to arrive at NASA, and then it took two or three weeks for another letter to come back with the pictures that you requested. And so what you now do on a website, clicking on a picture, took over a month, the best part of six weeks back in those days. Even back in those days, as a teenager, Enright had the presence of mind to record his own build-up and reaction to the Apollo 17 liftoff on a cassette tape in real time. The only night launch of the Apollo program, the Saturn V rocket lit up the Florida sky, waking up the resting alligators in the swamps that surrounded Launch Pad 39A at Kennedy Space Center. This is his original recording, with added commentary from the earlier Apollo 11 launch. The spacecraft will ease its way up, gradually at first, and then speed up to a speed capable of, which makes it capable of achieving an orbit around the Earth approximately 200 kilometers above Cape Kennedy. Past T-minus 60. 55 seconds and counting. Neil Armstrong just reported back it's been a real smooth countdown. We passed the 52nd mark. Power transfer is complete. We're on internal power with the launch vehicle at this time. 40 seconds away from the Apollo 11 liftoff. All the second stage tanks now pressurized. 35 seconds and counting. We are still go with Apollo 11. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift off. Go. We have a lift off. Ready, go. Pass the very, very close. So uh, the rocket, uh, when it did take off, the impact was literally that. It was the impact of a wall of sound uh, hitting us. The ground began to shake. And of course, the sky lit up like I've never seen before. It was an amazing sight to watch a Saturn V rocket take off. And it still just balanced on a pillar of fire as it slowly climbs into the sky and you get hit by this enormous wave of sound. What I was being hit with, it, it, the first analogy that came to my mind then 
was, you know, what if you peel an orange away completely, uh, the orange is actually, each segment is actually composed of tiny little, uh, little droplets sealed in their own skin. If you look carefully at an orange, it's all these tiny little droplets. And I felt like I was being hit with droplets of sound that were punching my chest all over. You see uh, S1C, the first stage cut off. S2 has ignited, we can confirm. And the thrust looks good. All engines, all sources show the second stage is burning perfectly. Nearly all of NASA's astronauts selected for Apollo were test pilots or aviators with the US Air Force or Navy. But on board Apollo 17, Harrison Jack Schmidt was about to become the first professionally trained geologist to set foot on another world. A lot of my friends had, uh, from Caltech had gone into the rocket industry. Uh, and I had not paid a lot of attention to that. Uh, I was a geology student working on... Uh, headed for my PhD in geology. And I, I was living with a farm family in Western Norway, working on some geological problems there. And every evening I would listen to the Voice of America coming out of uh, uh, Tunisia, as I recall. Willis Conover had a program called Jazz from A to Z. Good evening, Willis Conover in Washington, D.C. with Music USA, Part 1. The Voice of America presents The Big Bands. Tonight, Benny Goodman. And that was when I heard about Sputnik first time in, in 1957. Uh, uh, when I was at Harvard in graduate student, uh, the National Academy of Sciences announced that they thought the first person on the moon ought to be a geologist, a hard rock geologist. Well, that's what I was. Once the three-day trip to our nearest celestial neighbour was underway, attention turned to tasks like photography. The Apollo 8 Earthrise image on Christmas Eve 1968 had captured the imagination of the entire world. And on Apollo 17, Schmidt was about to snap another iconic photograph on his Hasselblad camera. 29,000 kilometres from home, he turned the shutter around and snapped a photo of Earth that became known as the Blue Marble. One of the most reproduced images in history, it has become a symbol of the environmental movement, the Earth hanging in the black void of space. Once I knew what our flight plan was, was and that would be on the way to the moon and have three and a half days just basically to, to take care of a variety of operational procedures, check out the lunar module and the like, but there was going to be a lot of downtime. And uh, having grown up with a father very interested in meteorology and having spent time as a, ch as a kid uh, trying to forecast weather patterns in southern New Mexico, I decided, well, let me spend those two and a half days getting as many observations, amateur observations of the weather patterns in the Southern Hemisphere as possible. And so it was a, it really was a, a labor of love for me uh, to do that. And, and as a geologist, uh, I don't look at the Earth as a fragile place. It has endured four and a half billion years of things that we can't even imagine. 
It was he and Commander Gene Cernan who would ascend to the moon's Taurus Littrow Valley, and as we sat down for a chat in Mitchell, Indiana, Schmidt told me about that place they called home for three days on the lunar surface. Taurus Littrow, from a human perspective, is a very beautiful place. It's a valley deeper than the Grand Canyon of the Colorado in the United States. It is uh, uh, illuminated, when we were, we were there, illuminated by a brilliant sun. And, uh, but it's all silhouetted, in a sense, against a black sky. And that's what's hardest to get used to, for me, was seeing a bright sun in a black sky. That's something you don't see uh, here in Mitchell, Indiana, like today, or, or any, anywhere. Uh, so uh, it was a very beautiful place to be, and any time you felt the least bit homesick, which I never did, uh, you could look above the South Massif, the south wall of the valley, and see the earth, always in the same part of the sky. So it was a, it was a beautiful place to be, and from a geological perspective, it was an ideal place for a field geologist to work. One of the most dramatic discoveries on the surface was that of orange soil, moon dust with volcanic glass particles. Leo Enright explains how scientists back in Houston couldn't contain their excitement when they realised what Jack Schmidt and Gene Cernan had found. During one of the moonwalks, Jack suddenly announced that he'd discovered orange soil. Bright orange soil on the surface of the moon. Now, in the TV cameras, we could see that the soil was orange. It wasn't the bland grey of the moon. But when we saw that, when we heard him say orange soil and we saw the TV with orange soil, all the scientists jumped up at once and all the tables with all the maps for planning the moonwalks were scattered around the room. I have never before or since seen a group of scientists go so completely crazy. Oh, hey! Wait a minute. What? Where are the reflections? I've been through once. There is orange soil! Don't move it till I see it. It's all over. Orange. Don't move it till I see it. I've stirred it up with my feet. Hey, it is. I can see it from here. It's orange. Wait a minute, let me put my visor up. It's still orange. Sure it is. Crazy. Orange. Ireland played its part too in analysing some lunar samples. We had our own hidden figures like Hilary O'Donnell, Eimear Key and Dina Malloy from the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, who were among those who took part in Apollo research. Doctor and physicist Percy McCormack went to National School in Sutton in County Dublin and grew up in both the capital and in Limerick. He began his research career at Trinity College Dublin with an interest in fluids, which would lead to important work on the design of the rocket engines for the Apollo moon landings. Every country in the world, including Ireland, received a goodwill moon rock from both Apollo 11 and Apollo 17. You can even hear the Apollo 17 astronauts' thought process in deciding which rocks should be the chosen ones. Jack has picked up a very significant rock, typical of what we have here in the valley of Torres Lito. It's a rock composed of many fragments, of many sizes, and many shapes, probably from all parts of the moon, perhaps millions of years old. But a rock of all sizes and shapes, fragments of all sizes and shapes, and even colors that have grown together and become a cohesive rock, outlasting the nature of space, sort of living together 
in a very coherent, very peaceful manner. When we return this rock, or some of the others like it to Houston, we'd like to share a piece of this rock with so many of the countries throughout the world. We hope that this will be a symbol of what our feelings are, what the feelings of the Apollo program are, and a symbol of mankind that we can live in peace and harmony in the future. People wanted a look too. A small fragment of Apollo 11 moon rock was put on display in Dublin in February of 1970 and more than 4,000 people showed up in just a few hours at the United States Embassy building in Ballsbridge. Unfortunately, a display sent here from the Apollo 11 mission was forever lost in a fire at Dunsink Observatory in October 1977. David Moore, editor of Astronomy Ireland magazine and founder of Astronomy Ireland. There was a piece on public display in Dunsink Observatory and unfortunately there was a major fire. One wing of the uh, 200 year old building was completely destroyed. The pictures show it's just a pile of rubble afterwards and that's where the moon rock was. So the the ash and the debris apparently was moved to the nearby Dunsink tip. People later realised when collectors started looking for bits of moon rock that the piece could be worth millions of dollars. (laughs) So it was almost worth sifting through an entire tip to look for a tiny piece of moon rock. Uh, But Given that it was encased in, I think it was Perspex plastic, that doesn't bode well for a fire not destroying it completely. So there's, there's certainly some atoms, molecules of the moon in Dunsink Tip. The story died away with history, and people in my era do, do remember it. I remember the fire and may have heard about the moon rock story, but it hasn't really come to prominence in, in, in recent years. Uh, given that you know it's a bit of an esoteric story, you aren't going to sift through an entire tip and find a small piece of moon rock that's going to be, I'm sure, highly fragmented. Probably, even if it wasn't broken up by the intense heat of the fire, then I'm sure it was during the process of excavating all that rubble and dumping it into a tip. Luckily, no one was hurt in the fire at Dunsink. However, a tragic inferno 10 years earlier had almost ended America's journey to land men on the moon before the Russians. It was January 27th, 1967, and the unmistakable voice of Jules Bergman on ABC News informed a nation. It was all over in one stunned, horrifying second. Astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White and Roger Chaffee, the prime crew of Apollo 1, our first manned Apollo flight, at T-minus 10 minutes in a simulated countdown for the flight at Cape Kennedy. It was 6.31 p.m. Eastern Time last night. After delays caused by minor problems, they'd reached the climactic moments of the countdown. Plugs out, the spacecraft was on its own internal power, disconnected from Pad 34's electrical supply. Apollo's instrument panel with hundreds of gauges, switches, and dials was in front of them. As the count progressed, each crewman flicked switches. Then they got into a hold, and suddenly the moment of death. An electrical spark apparently shot out and ignited the 100% oxygen in the cabin that they were breathing as in a real space flight. Their faceplates were down, Apollo's hatch sealed. On closed-circuit TV screens 218 feet below in the blockhouse, Horrified engineers watched the burst of flames and smoke envelop Grissom, White, and Chaffee. They heard their last words of shock and surprise. It was over in an unbelievable microsecond. The flames enveloped Apollo 1, burning the couches, charring the spacesuits. The crewmen never had a chance. I could hear enough uh, to get fire uh, out of it and get us out of here. And uh, it was not pleasant. 
it didn't take long for, and it was probably by my years in the Air Force where I had been with guys in the morning and they were gone in the afternoon uh, because of a crash or, uh, or an ejection gone bad, you know, out of a burning airplane or something. And uh, you build a certain scar tissue that uh, while you're still saddened and shocked and all that, you got to work, th- work through it. And that kind of kicked in for me. I, I was, uh, I didn't, at that point, particularly in those first day or two afterwards, uh, I tried to avoid the, the sadness piece of it. And A, find out what happened. B, what are we going to do? The fire may have saved the program. I hate to say it that way because it's, it, doesn't set, it doesn't always come out right, but the spacecraft needed improvement and some of the systems and even the strategy, 100% oxygen versus more an air-like mixture uh, that we should hatch that open out instead of in. Um, some way to get out of it in a hurry. So it kind of, we stopped and improved and we had a much better spacecraft to go to the moon. And if, if that accident had happened, say at the moon or close to it, we just never would have heard from them again. It could have killed the program right there, stopped us. So I hate to, is a terrible price to pay, but uh, we learned a lot from it and were able to, uh, I think, make a better spacecraft and go on to the moon. The youngest of the three Apollo 1 astronauts killed in that fire was Roger Chaffee, at just 31 years of age. His wife Martha was 29, and his death left her to raise their two young kids, Cheryl and Stephen. I met up with Martha in her new hometown of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it was clear her emotions remained strong. Over five decades on from the day her neighbour and the future Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins came to her door to tell her her husband had been killed. I thought it couldn't be Roger because he wasn't flying. That would be my first indication that something was wrong. And um, then Mike Collins came to the door. I knew, and I told him, I said, Mike, I know that you're going to have to tell me. And then we, uh, I said, I've got to tell my kids. And I took them back to the bedroom. How do you explain to a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, you know, the day it's not coming back? It was hard. It was hard. We threw um, roses into a pond for all the women and the men. I think it was a sunflower or something to take down as we were leaving. And I, I, I sat there and Cheryl went up and put it in the lane. She said, I miss you, Daddy. It just hit me again. The commander of the Apollo 1 crew that perished was Gus Grissom, a country boy from rural Indiana and already a veteran of two space flights. He had been touted in the astronaut office as a likely favourite to become the first to walk on the moon, until that fateful fire that ended his life and that of his crewmates. Speaking to me in the family home in Mitchell, Lowell Grissom recounted the day he heard the news that his big brother had died. Uh, well, I, I was working down in the basement <laughs> on an unpleasant job, and my dad called and told us, and it was just... Uh, uh, something that was just unbelievable. It was, uh, you know, of course, a very big shock, and uh, 
uh, you know, at the time, uh, you you just don't know what to do, and it's that helpless uh, feeling that there is nothing you can do. So it's a very uh, very tragic time. I think he would like to be remembered uh, as a a hardworking, dedicated patriot. He he really was a patriot. He was he had thought about uh, maybe quitting the astronaut program and, and going to Vietnam to fly with his buddies. And, uh, of course, NASA wasn't very open to that suggestion, but uh, uh, I think he would like to be remembered as a, a very qualified, efficient uh, pilot and astronaut and a patriot. Tragedy, like that which befell the crew of Apollo 1, was a further reminder that life was tough for the families of Apollo astronauts. Amy Sue Bean is the daughter of the late Apollo 12 astronaut Alan Bean, the fourth man to walk on the moon. We sat down in her conservatory in Bernie, Texas, a northern suburb of San Antonio, and she told me families had to put any fear out of their minds. Every time there was a launch, we would go to somebody's house if, if we weren't at the launch. Uh, in Splat, we always had a tradition of doing a potluck at Splashdown at uh, the crew, you know, we'd each family would go to different crew members' wives' homes for the splashdown to watch it. And then we'd always have, they'd always have, I wouldn't, I was a child, but they'd have a glass of champagne. And so it was an exciting time. Uh, and, you know, each mission during that time was very successful, you know. And so we had a lot of confidence, I think, as families that we didn't feel scared because every time, you know, whether it was Apollo 7, whether it was Apollo 8, then 9, 10 was in May, and 11 in July, and then, of course, Apollo 12 was in November. Every one of them had been successful, so I think that gave us a good sense of security. And, you know, like you had mentioned, my best friend was, or is, Tracy Cernan, and her dad went up on Apollo 10, which was May 69. So I spent a lot of time at her house then, and with him, and so because I knew that he had come back safe, because I had seen him do things that it just, like I said, it, it seemed like, well, that's what we should do. And now this is my dad's turn to go up in space. I think it was harder on the wives, you know, they had to pick up the pieces and, and, and take care. We were proud of our dads and that we knew he was working and doing what he loved. And when, uh, when they were home, they were very loving and attentive, you know, as much as they could be. And they were, especially Gene. He was, he was just a very extroverted social person. He loved being a father. So he, that we didn't feel neglected. I think we 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 were just we loved our dads, and and um, no, we never felt that way. You know, we knew they just had a job to do and a duty. You know, I think that says a lot when your family is a military family. You know, you have a duty, not only as a family member, like I said, but your dad does. So you're okay with it, and you got to remember, people were going off to Vietnam then too. And a lot of Navy pilots, and our dads were both Navy pilots, and gosh, they were gone for years and sometimes getting shot down or getting imprisoned. So um, we felt fortunate that our dads were home on the weekends. Bean's father landed on the moon's ocean of storms on Apollo 12 just four months after the historic first landing on 11. The interest in the missions undoubtedly waned in the public eye as flights to the moon became seemingly more and more routine, even after the near disaster and successful failure of Apollo 13. The man tasked with leading RTE's coverage of Apollo 11 was the broadcaster Kevin O'Kelly, who Leo Enright remembers fondly. 
everybody who was alive at that time remembers where they were uh, when Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon. A lot of people in Ireland, of course, were sound asleep because uh, it happened at 3.56 a.m. Irish time uh, in the morning uh, on July 21st. Not July 20th. If you Google when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, they'll say July 20th because they go by American time. It was July 21st, of course, in Ireland. Everybody was riveted by this. And uh, the way to tell that, really, is that many, many years later, uh, I took over Kevin O'Kelly's desk in RTE. The great Kevin O'Kelly, who was the RTE commentator throughout the Apollo program. And when I opened the drawer, the big drawer at the bottom of his desk, all the letters flooded out. It was absolutely filled with letters and they would make your heart weep. The passion of people, most of whom were saying to him very simply, thank you for explaining something to me that I didn't understand and was a bit frightened about. David Murr from Astronomy Ireland says that interest in Apollo that Kevin O'Kelly helped nurture remains very much alive today in Ireland. We've had various Apollo events over the years, but you know, every decade's celebration anniversary comes up. And it, it is amazing how much interest there is. We used to run a, a shop that sold videos, old VHS videos, and they were coming to the end of their lives as DVDs took over. And we were offered a large batch of VHS videos about the Apollo missions, uh, documentaries about them, that we thought that we practically no interest, but they were basically giving them away. So we put them on sale in the shop and people uh, came in especially to buy them. I think people of that era who were young, impressionable adults, perhaps deciding on a career in, in science, it was a huge inspirational event for, for young people and they all wanted to relive that. So people of a certain age, it, it shocked me at how popular Apollo was. And it's it still is today. It's probably the single biggest event that's happened in, in, in history apart from things like maybe the First and Second World Wars, the 20th century was you know, the era that mankind set foot on another world for the first time. That's going to be equivalent to Columbus discovering the Americas. You know, it's, it's a major event in world history. I'm sure at the time, Ireland was glued to the few TV sets we had at the time, as was the whole planet. Once the TV sets were switched off, though, there remained a desire to mark the Apollo programme in different ways. As Dublin's need for housing grew, so did the need for names for streets and estates. I took a trip to the Woodville estate in Coolock, where Dublin City Council's historian-in-residence, Cormac Murr, explained the boom in housing in Ireland in the 1970s. Well, I suppose before, the 50s and 60s, this was pretty much green fields, farmland. There was one or two houses, big houses, big farms. Um, but there was a huge housing, uh, public housing uh, uh, growths uh, in the 50s and 60s, and this transformed pretty much overnight. So you had, you had loads of five-bedroom houses, four-bedroom houses, three-bedroom houses built over a very short period of time. That is what happened to Coolock and Artane and uh, um, Edenmore and Rohini. Like all of this area just became 
um, a huge suburb of Dublin with, with thousands of houses pretty much overnight. Most people that uh, uh, live here now have, have done so or, or their, you know, their family has done so since, uh, since these estates were built. So they've actually, most of them have actually good memories of uh, living in the tenements in Dublin, you know, living in apartments, um, not having space. And then going from a, from a situation of having no space to having you know, four or five bedroom houses, they just they, they didn't know, know, you know what, what to think of, of the situation. Um, they also um, lacked amenities though initially. You know, there was a, like schools had to be built, churches had to be built, um, transport had to be arranged to get into town, um, you know, grocery shops, entertainment uh, venues. So that, that took a while to, uh, um, um, to get all, all of those um, um, amenities in place after the houses were built. So th- they missed some of what they had from the old days, particularly close to the city, but they definitely loved the space and the you know, bathrooms and toilets and all of these luxuries that they never could have dreamed of before. Well, obviously, with all of the new estates being built around the area, they had to get names. And this is, is, is called Woodville Estate. So many people said it should be Woodville Court, Woodville Green, you know, Wood, Woodville Close, all of these names. Um, however, someone decided, look, this was uh, just after the moon landings of July 69, and someone decided, why don't we call them after the, uh, the first uh, mission, successful mission to the land on the moon? And uh, it, did, it did get, like, some people uh, thought it was crazy. Some people call them spacers and moonies, um, but it, it did get uh, public sport within the community. Um, so now we're actually standing on Apollo Way, and, and you can see the names, the way they're named as well. So you've got Apollo Way, so Apollo was the, obviously the, the module which brought them to the moon. Um, the two people who walked on the moon are Armstrong and Aldrin, and they're called Armstrong Walk and Aldrin Walk. You've got, they landed on the Sea of Tranquility, you know, which is a, pretty much a crater, a grove, so that's called Tranquility Grove. That's just up there, up the road, is it? Just up, up the, the road here, yeah, yeah. And then you've got um, Eagle Park, and obviously the Eagle has landed, it, Eagle Park. Now they actually had a, a Collins rendezvous, but they had the rendezvous with him, uh, Aldrin and Armstrong afterwards. But that, they actually um, decided to change that in uh, 77. So not only did Michael Collins not to get to land on the moon, he also had his, uh, the name, the state, Collins rendezvous, uh, that was actually removed in 77. They ha- had tried, some people had tried actually to uh, remove all the names. They wanted more normal names, like Woodville Court, Woodville Close. And uh, so they had a poll, and four, four out of seven ratepayers had to change a name, but the only one they changed was uh, Collins Rendezvous to Woodville Court. It is a funny story in many ways. You know, you've got Apollo Way and you know Aldrin Walk and Armstrong Walk right in the middle of Coolock. It, it, you know, it, it does raise a lot of questions, and and when you talk to people about it, they go, "What?" Of the twelve Americans who walked on the moon during Apollo, there are a couple with some interesting Irish heritage. Apollo 15 Lunar Module pilot Jim Irwin traced his roots back to County Tyrone. His grandparents were reported to have emigrated to the US from Pomeroy in the mid-19th century. And then there's the fascinating background of the first man, Neil Armstrong. David Murr learned of his Irish heritage over coffee during a visit by Armstrong to these shores in 2003. Maybe a half an hour we had coffee with him and of course you can remember most of the questions off the top of your head but the big one for me was i remember thinking it's 2003 remember so we didn't know that everybody was irish back then tom cruise is irish barack obama is irish joe biden is irish. everybody's irish but it wasn't that way in 2003 uh, as much and uh, I, we had it we thought armstrong sounds like a scottish name to me i thought uh, so i thought i'll ask him the question anyway and he lit up at that point in fact it really broke the ice and he said they had just traced their family history and that, in fact, 
his recent ancestors, going back to the 1800s, had come from County Fermanagh. And then he really smiled, laughed a bit, and he says, apparently, the family were known for stealing cattle. <laughs> so I give a lot of talks in schools, and it delights me to tell the kids who have certainly learned about Neil Armstrong that, you know, the first man on the moon was Irish, and he was descended from ancient Irish cattle rustlers. You know, quickly we adjust to the new norm. You know, quickly we adjusted to people going into space. Quickly we adjusted that men walked on the moon. Quickly we adjusted that the shuttle would go up and come back, right? Quickly we adjust that people are living on the International Space Station every day for years. It's an amazing feat. Um, but we quickly adjust to that. And uh, so uh, I, I don't think I realized the historical significance well into my 30s. And I started almost to have time to think about it. You know, uh, you're still growing up a lot in your 20s. and uh, But people, even I could, people will say, oh my gosh, I, your dad would, you know, walk on the moon. Or I can't believe that, you know. Uh, but, but then I would think, gosh, you know, they just hadn't been around it all that much. Maybe that's why it seems like such a big deal to them. So yeah, you 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 get to, you. It does seem normal, and I think that's good. You know, I think that's good that exploration and space flight becomes normal, just like driving a car. It's certainly not as safe. It's certainly a lot harder, and will continue to be. But uh, I think it's it's one of the great things. I think in a way that we did make it look easy. When I look at the moon, I definitely think about him more. You know, it's funny, grief is, you know, is a funny thing and you don't always know until you've lived through it what how you're gonna react. I've thought of my dad more since he died, I think, than I ever thought of him when he was alive. You know, because you kind of take it for granted or you know you can call him on the phone and you're going on about your business. So I've definitely, I've looked up at the moon more and thought, wow, you know, dad was there and, uh, you know, he was there, and that was a great moment in his life, and I'm proud of him. And so it's, it, 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 it is, it's like a, a daily or a nightly reminder of, the, of, of him, you know, one of 12 people. But, you know, mostly the, the feelings I have for my dad are, you know, I carry right here, carry him in my heart. It's a moment in history that will never be forgotten. A where-were-you question for those alive to witness those six Apollo landings. Those 12 men that walked on the moon, and others who orbited, have told their stories now. Now it's time for the next generation. For a return to the moon. For the first woman on the moon. And eventually, for trips to Mars. Who knows, we may even someday get to see an Irish tricolour left in the lunar soil. Picking Up Some Dust was narrated and produced by Shane Hannan. Sound design was by Rachel Hannan and mastering by Neil Kavanagh. The programme was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland funded by the television licence fee. We may never work in the same way again. So reimagine the office with scalable workspaces that flex to your needs. Design-led interiors and world-class IT. Iconic offices have reinvented the future of working so you don't have to. Hybrid offices, co-working, or custom floors for a global HQ. 16 prime Dublin locations, infinite possibilities. Experience it for yourself. Visit iconicoffices.ie to reimagine how working can work for your business.